What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about Medicare for All. 219 economists have just signed an open letter to Congress supporting Medicare for All and arguing that it will reduce overall health care spending. But how exactly do we pay for it? For some answers, we turn to Robert Pollan. He's a distinguished professor of economics at UMass Amherst. He writes for the New Left Review, Jacobin, and The Nation. And he works in several countries on building high-employment green economies and on creating living wage laws in American cities and states. Bob Pollan, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Well, you're one of the, of the 219 economists who signed the statement in support of Medicare for All. A lot of people don't realize it, but the government right now pays for a lot of the total costs of American health care. How much is it? When you add up the existing Medicare program for people over 65, Medicaid, the Veterans Administration, uh, the Defense Department Health Care, and other smaller programs, it amounts to almost $2 trillion, and that puts it at over 60% of total health care spending in the country already. Well, you and your colleagues at UMass Amherst at the Political Economy Research Institute did a study of how to pay for Medicare for all. Private spending right now, I understand, is around $1 trillion, and that's the amount that would have to be replaced by public money. I mean, if you just say a trillion dollars, you think, well, that's going to explode the deficit far beyond the current Trump level of, of deficit. What is your proposal for coming up with the trillion dollars? Yeah. So, of course, it wouldn't explode any deficit if basically all we need is for people that are already paying a trillion plus to private health insurance companies, substitute that for contributing to the, the public purse. So there's different ways you can get to a trillion dollars in uh, additional public funds to substitute for the private spending. What we proposed uh, was, roughly speaking, about $600 billion would come from business Premiums. So businesses are already paying in the range of $600 billion more. We say that let's let the businesses who are paying their worker, uh, for their workers' health care, let's let them all get an 8% cut reduction in the premiums they now pay. And when you do that, you still get about $600 billion. And then the other two main sources, we propose a uh, sales tax of 3.75% on non-necessities, that would raise about $200 billion. And then we also propose a wealth tax for uh, wealth above $1 million, and that would be 0.38%, uh, and that would raise another $200 billion. So that, those are basically the sources. Your critics say that you have underestimated the cost of Medicare for All 
because of the people who right now have no medical insurance or inadequate medical insurance, and that's that's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Apparently, ten percent of residents of the United States right now don't have any insurance, and right. I read about twenty-five percent are considered underinsured. Once those yeah. people are on Medicare for all, they're going to go to the doctor. They have a lot of pent-up need for treatment, for medication, mm-hmm. and that's going to cost the system billions more. Have you thought of this? I sure have. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, there's you know quite an extensive literature which we review at length in our study. And in fact, actually I haven't heard any critics make that particular criticism. The reason being that we deliberately took high-end estimates as to how much the increase in demand would be. We looked at the literature. We looked at people who have criticized other Medicare for All proposal studies, and we just basically took their numbers. In fact, so we estimate that overall demand in the system under Medicare for All, when people have no deductibles, co-pays, out-of-pockets, Overall spending will go up by 12%. Now, by comparison, the study that came out of the Mercatus Institute, the Koch Brothers-based institute, their estimate as to how much overall spending would go up was 11.3%. So we're higher than the Koch Brothers-sponsored study, and that was deliberate. I'm not saying that 12% is the right number. I just wanted to be really certain that I did not underestimate it. And by the way, the fact that the uninsured and the underinsured are going to have access to good quality care now, that's a positive. That's a massive positive. That's how we're going to raise overall health care outcomes on average that lag significantly behind most other advanced economies. Well, another one of the objections concerns prescription drug price controls, which you know most of us think are essential uh, in the United States. Of course, the drug companies tell us that this is going to have uh, a, a disastrous effect on research in new drugs. The only way we get new drugs, they tell us, is the drug business has to make a profit. And, you know, people like you want to slash those profits. I found a drug industry website. I want to quote them. A treatment that delays the onset of Alzheimer's by five years would save Medicare and Medicaid $218 billion annually. But under Medicare for all, such innovation would never occur, close quote. What do you think about that argument? Okay. Number one, Right now, the U.S. is paying roughly 50% more for prescription drugs than any other advanced economy. So all the other uh, West European economies, Canada, Japan, so forth. So we're already paying 50% more. Secondly, in terms of research, something like 95% of all the spending on research comes from the U.S. government. Hmm. That is paid for by us, U.S. taxpayers. The pharmaceutical companies skim off the top, then they repackage things, they market it, and so forth. The the uh, drug companies in the United States have the highest level of profitability, as it is, of any industry. And what are they doing with the money that they're earning? The main thing they're doing is share buybacks. That is, they are manipulating their stock price to drive up the price in the short term. They are not plowing it into research. So uh, we aren't going to lose anything in terms of research capacity. If anything, 
It's going to open up opportunities for smaller pharmaceutical companies to compete and to take advantage of the very, very beneficial research going on in the public sector that we are all financing. Okay, here's another argument, one I don't really know anything about. Your critics say reimbursement rates for hospitals are too low under your plan and that a lot of hospitals are likely to go out of business at the levels that you propose to pay them. And with fewer hospitals, that means patients would receive lower quality care, lots of doctors and nurses and uh, orderlies will lose their jobs, and all that will be your fault. That's a lot on me. Uh, Well, uh, one thing is the the bill in the House of Representatives by Congresswoman Jayapal, with whom I've been working recently, does not have the same cap on hospital reimbursement rates that the 2017 bill by Senator Sanders does. So those kinds of hard caps, as proposed in the Sanders bill, may not come to fruition anyway. That said, the caps are really not that strict, and uh, we have to keep this in mind as well. When we talk about 12% increase in demand, that means 12% increase in demand for hospitals and for physicians. They will benefit even if they have modestly lower rates per patient visit. They will have 12% more demand. And as we go through in our study, that increase in demand is going to be greater than the modest losses of revenue that they would have when they are uh, asked to charge Medicare-based rates. So maybe maybe you're right that your bill is not going to lead to the loss of jobs for hundreds of thousands of doctors and nurses and orderlies. But what about all the people at the private insurance companies? They will certainly lose their jobs under your plan. they will. And as far as I know, our study is the first one to recognize that, take it seriously. We we have studied it quite extensively. And if if you talk about the administrative savings that are available by transitioning to Medicare for All, which we think are huge, about 9% of total system costs. The main source of those savings are layoffs for people in the private health insurance industry and people working in doctor's offices and hospitals doing the administrative work. And that's going to come with the territory. Now, the thing that we emphasize in our study is the imperative of a just transition for these workers. And we're looking at, you know, something like 1.7 million people. And so we have to have those people protected in terms of, first of all, their pensions. Uh, secondly, in terms of their wages, uh, when they transition to a new job to get wage insurance, relocation support if needed, and retraining support if needed. Those are all components of a just transition. In some ways, the biggest criticism uh, is the one that compares uh, what's going on now in the British and Canadian health systems with what you propose? We are told that the National Health Service in the UK is uh, in a state of crisis and disaster, that there are incredibly long wait times, and that Canada also has incredibly long wait times and the bureaucratic uh, problems. Is there merit in these arguments? 
Well, of course there is. I mean, you know, we're talking about a system in the United States, we're talking about almost 20% of GDP. In the UK and Canada, we're talking about 10% of GDP, which, by the way, is a lot less. Nevertheless, these are huge, complex systems, and of course there will be problems. But if you look at the evidence from uh, surveys on satisfaction levels by uh, consumers of the system in Canada and the UK, Germany, France, and so forth, they consistently come out higher, not lower. People like their healthcare systems in those countries more than in our country. In addition, uh, in terms of outcomes, the healthcare outcomes in Germany, France, the UK, Canada, and so forth, they're all higher than the U.S., even though they're spending roughly half uh, that we are per person. Well, that's all the objections that I've been able to come up with. Have I missed any? Um, well, so I did a piece in the Wall Street Journal in March, and there were 1,896 responses, and most of them just said I was a total idiot. Um, so that's not a really substantive critique. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't raised that possibility, but I, I don't think it's it's really relevant here. Yeah. A lot of it is just, you're shoving government down our throat. How dare right. you? We hate the government. On the other hand, you know, you've heard the joke, I hate the government. Don't let the government take away my Medicare benefits. <laughs> right. So Medicare is a popular program. And so what we're talking about is extending it and giving everybody the right to good quality care and saving money, significant amount of money. Uh, that's the idea behind Medicare for All. Robert Pollan, he and his colleagues at UMass Amherst at the Political Economy Research Institute did a study of how to pay for Medicare for All. You can find it online. It's called Economic Analysis of Medicare for All. Uh, Bob Pollan, thanks so much for answering all our questions today. Thanks very much for having me on. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.